focus on headline. All right, let's take a look at what major issues are making the headlines today on Focus on Headline. For this, uh, joining us in the studio, we have our reporters, Yoon Se-young and Lee Ji-young. Guys, welcome back. Good hey, evening. Good evening, Ashane. Welcome back. Thank you. Uh, oh, you were not here yesterday. Yeah, you we... didn't even know yeah. I wasn't here. <laughs> you didn't even uh, know. I guess that's a good thing, right? If you know that uh, uh-huh. the host is not missing, that must mean uh, Soa did a fantastic job mm-hmm. uh, in filling in for me. But uh, good to be back in the studio. <laughs> Uh, because we have a lot of things to talk about here. And we're going to start things off with something that uh, I have certainly been following very closely, and I'm sure a lot of people have been following closely as well. The second special parliamentary committee investigating uh, the Itaewon crowd crush uh, it held its second public forum today. Uh, this with the attendance of some of the victims' family members and survivors as well. Start us off with this, Chiang. Can you tell us about more, more about today's meeting? Sure. Now we had the first meeting this Tuesday, uh, but the participants were experts on crowd control right, and right. first response, and they discussed how to prevent a tragedy like this from ever happening again. But for today's forum, we had eight bereaved family members, uh, two survivors, and two business owners um, based in Itaewon. Uh, The People Power Party and the Democratic Party of Korea were at odds over the witness list um, as the main opposition party requested for um, government officials, including the interior minister, Lee Sang-min, to attend. And as it seems as though the ruling party got its way as the interior minister did not show up at today's meeting. Now, at the forum, participants criticized that the government attitude was way too insufficient when it came to the response of the rescue and support operations uh, at the time of the disaster. Now, one of the victim's family, Trace Hanmi, she spoke out and she uh, said that she knows that the president gave some orders for the bereaved family, but no government agency briefed the family members so far. And it seems as though the families are out of the loop when it comes to any updates of the tragedy and that uh, even other family members' information was not shared and a lot of the updates from that tragedy they had to see on the news. Uh, The Special Parliamentary uh, Committee's investigation will end next week on Tuesday, January 17th. So uh, a lot of ha- has to be catched, catched up, uh, caught up until then. But um, it seems as, seems as though we didn't don't really have a lot of substantial progress since uh, Tuesday's meeting. You know, uh, as an outsider looking into this investigation and all the things coming in, it's frustrating. Uh, but I can't imagine how much more frustrating it must be for mm-hmm. the victims' families and the survivors as well. It is appalling mm-hmm. that these victims and their families uh, are not in the loop of things and that they have right. to find out from the news. And, and that kind of shows you a lot because I think that was the big thing and that was a big criticism coming in from the uh, the victim's family mm-hmm. is that the reason why this uh, investigative committee needs to be expanded, this investigation needs to be extended is because mm-hmm. for the vast majority of the time, they were basically bickering both political parties about yeah. political stuff and not about focusing on getting the answers for the victim's family and the survivors as well. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned that this investigation is going to uh, 
end shortly mm-hmm. uh, because this is even after the 10-day, uh, what is it, the extension, extension that yeah, they had, right. right? If the family members believe that this is not enough and that there needs to be another extension, I think there needs to be an extension and much better investigation and get get them in the loop here. I, I cannot believe that they have to find out from the news yeah. and that uh, this is getting ridiculous yeah. here. And that was one of the biggest, biggest, uh, one of their biggest uh, uh, concerns that they had was just, just share the information. We really right. just want to know what's going right. on. And, and I think this is one of those things where it doesn't matter which party affiliation you were. A lot mm. of the people were very disappointed in both parties, I think, mm, involved yeah. with this because right. their role was to get the information, get the uh, the answers to the victim's family and the survivors as well. Yep, and honestly, right. we, we've only been hearing about the same thing over and over again. Exactly. Uh, who is going to be questioned by the police mm. and uh, who might be... but. No answers, and uh, of course, the, the, you know they bring in experts into how to avoid this. But the whole thing is, you know, there was no plan, and there was no organized plan in place, and that's mm-hmm. why it happened. And uh, if the fa- uh, the victims' families want another extension, I think it's the job of the lawmakers to continue to extend it until the answers are out, and the victims' families and the survivors are uh, happy. Mm-hmm. with the results of the investigation. Uh, also, a public hearing to discuss ways to resolve the issues regarding the compensation of uh, victims of Japan's forced labor during World War II was held Thursday morning. Uh, this is uh, really a long-standing thorny issue, has attracted a lot of attention and concerns at home. Uh, this is probably one of the main reasons uh, as to why uh, Seoul-Tokyo relations can't improve further despite the UN administration's push to do so. Seong, how, how did the meeting go? today. Well, during today's hearing, which is virtually the last process of collecting opinions from different parties before the government's announcement of the final draft, we definitely could feel the overheated tension throughout the whole time as the representative of the victims strongly expressed their opposition to the way the South Korean 40 Ministry and the Korea-Japan Parliamentarians Union are trying to end this problem up. Cho Yeon-dong, the first Vice Minister of Foreign Affairs, said in his opening speech, If we leave the strained Korea-Japan relationship unattended because it is difficult to carry out, the damage will eventually go to the people of both countries, and we do not want to face that undesirable situation, stressing his willingness to find a compromise and settle the compensation issue this time, even if it requires sacrifices. And a representative from the Foundation for Victims of Forced Mobilization by Imperial Japan, a state-operated entity, repeated the foundation's stance on the final proposal currently being considered by relevant agencies and the government as well. Earlier, the foundation weighed on the possibility of compensation by subrogation, and this means the liability for damages would remain the same, but a third party would take over the debt and compensate the victims. And this came after approval from the Ministry of the Interior and Safety. And on Wednesday, Shin Gyu-son, chairman of the Foundation of Victims of Forced Mobilization by Imperial Japan, even said, enacting a special law referring to compensation by subrogation is the only way to resolve this problem. Uh, Shim Gyu-san, the chairman of the Foundation for Victims of Forced Mobilization by Imperial Japan. I'm assuming that this person is representing the victims, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And so the person uh, representing the victims uh, is saying that this compensation by a third party 
is the only way to resolve the uh, problem is is apparently what this person is saying. Again, another issue with this, and I, and one of the big changes that we have been seeing with this uh, quote-unquote negotiation is that if you remember the 2015 Comfort Women mm-hmm. uh, play, arguably one of the worst deals in place, the biggest reason for why it was so criticized was because it did not get the victims involved so uh, with the, the negotiation. It was basically done on a government-to-government level. And... Uh, Unless it's the victims and the victim side say that they are happy with uh, whatever the uh, the solution is, this is another one of those things that uh, isn't going to be resolved. And I think Japan knows that if they're kind of able to anchor in and not change their stance, eventually they'll you know the other side will succumb is what they're hoping for right now. And I think that's one thing that we shouldn't see. Uh, but also. In line with this, uh, Sam Min-jung, the Director General for Asia and Pacific Affairs from the Foreign Ministry, uh, also expressed the same stance regarding the issue. Right. Um, Director General Hall, during the hearing on Thursday, formalized the proposal solution mentioned earlier, uh, which is compensating the victims via third party. She said it is possible for victims of forced labor living in South Korea to receive reimbursement from a third party, and the government will ask for consent from the victims to persuade them to receive the compensation, meaning the government will meet with each individual's, uh, the victims and their bereaved families to verify whether they are going to accept such compensation. She added that many possible legal solutions were discussed and the government reviewed different options repeatedly and it concluded that the key is that the victims can receive the compensation first through a third party as soon as possible as many of them have already passed away. And as I said, if the government goes ahead with a third-party reimbursement solution, uh, the Foundation for Victims of Forced Mobilization by Imperial Japan is highly likely to be that third party who will pay compensation to the victims. But the, um, here's the question, where does money come from? And the government says uh, it will raise the domestic fund by accepting donations from local companies, but it does not sound reasonable enough for many people. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> another, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I was gonna, yeah. another one of those things mm-hmm. where, uh, sure, a third party, uh, number one, the best case scenario is that the Japanese companies who are responsible for not paying the forced laborers, uh, they uh, man up and uh, come out and say, we apologize, what we did was wrong, and uh, this is uh, the compensation that you all deserve. That would be the best case scenario. We know that that is not going to happen right now, Mm -hmm. uh, which is why it's it's kind of going back and forth here. If, again, the third party, any of that money comes from South Korea or the South Korean taxpayers' money, uh, South Korean companies that not even linked uh, to this whole issue here, I'm... I, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not part of this. The, the victim side here, but uh, I, I think the victims would not be happy with this. Uh, <laughs> this is why uh, it just goes nowhere with this. And unless the victims uh, and the victim side are happy with the compensation, I think that's a big thing. But again, where the money comes from is the big issue. I, I can't see a situation where uh, all parties are going to be involved with this. Obviously. Uh, very controversial. Jiang, you had something to say? Uh, yes, it was pretty much, uh, you, you said it all. It, it's just uh, as though it'll be a, a lot of uh, pushback from not only the victims, but also South Koreans who are really observing this this situation, monitoring this, this situation. And, and if a cent from even one cent from Korean, South Korean taxpayers 
go through to this compensation, they're not going to be happy about it. And it's going to go take us back to 2015 when the Comfort Woman Agreement was uh, behind closed doors. But this this itself is not behind closed doors, but it seems as though... uh, a lot of what the, um, survive, the the survivors and victims want is really not put in. No, it's right. it's absolutely not at this time. And uh, again, if it's you know it, the governments, both governments trying to end this quickly, I don't think that's the you know mm-hmm. the ultimate goal mm-hmm. here. The ultimate goal is getting the proper compensation and apology mm-hmm. uh, for the victims here. Uh, but not only because of this uh, proposal of transfer for the responsibility of the Japanese corporate, but uh, Again, I mean, you have to consider the opinions of the victims, and apparently this is not all, they're not considering all the opinions of the victims, apparently, Seung? Right. On top of that, that's also contrary to the Supreme Court's ruling that order direct compensation from Japanese companies complicit in war crimes. And victims say receiving donations from local corporates and raising funds to repay compensation can never be the solution because it lacks the direct involvement of related Japanese firms, which still have not expressed their willingness to apologize. And former apology of Japanese companies like Mitsubishi Heavy Industry or Nippon Steel Corporation is what the victims really want. And I believe you will remember um, last year, past uh, August, a number of victims who belong to the uh, Japanese Forced Mobilization Civic Group received 931 won, which is less than a dollar from the Japanese government as pension as the forced labor victims continue to request to disclose all unpaid wages and pension records of them. And it was very insulting and clearly shows how the Japanese government and the corporate see this issue. That's why they want sincere apology from the Japanese companies and the government as well. Meanwhile, South Korean government is expected to draw up a final decision this month based on the opinions from the hearing. But it is unclear whether it will be able to persuade the civic grave of South Korean wartime forced labor victims or and the victims um, themselves. Indeed, today, some groups of the victims, including Yangum Dokhalmoni, a civic group that supports victims in Gwangju area, and a legal representative group declared their absence the day before of the hearing, protesting the ministry's failure to provide the topics of the debate and not considering the victims' positions at all. And the representative of the victims who attended the hearing to convey their opinions went on to say that the vice foreign minister emphasized that it was the last procedure before making a final decision and the remark is interpreted the government will not collect opinions anymore because they do not have a willingness to change what they think is right and uh, historic Supreme Court decision should never be recognized as an obstacle to Korea-Japan relations. 931-1, that's a slap in the face and it's Mm. really insulting to say the least and uh, what we're seeing right now with this plan with the third party is the way I see it is basically this. like me and uh and i did something terrible to seung uh something that i should really <laughs> apologize for but i'm like no nah. and then Chiyoung being the good person basically like, I'll, I'll apologize on behalf of sj but you're not going to feel better no because the, the person you need to get the apology from is me uh and this is exactly what it is and mm-hmm. i think uh by 
the Mitsubishi Group and the Nippon Steel, them not coming out saying that we're going to compensate them properly is their way of saying we're not going to apologize because we're, we did nothing wrong. And the reason why this is a terrible thing is because if you don't learn from your mistakes, and it doesn't seem like they learn from their mistake, history repeats itself. And these are terrible history that right. cannot be repeated here. And we here. cannot move on without solving this historical issue. Yeah, uh, that's the thing. Mm. Uh, the problem is it's it's hard to come by when Japan's made it very, very uh, clear that they're not going to move an inch with this negotiations mm. right mm. now. Uh, last year, also, Japan proposed to add the Sato Mines, another very controversial uh, place there, uh, to the 2023 UNESCO World Heritage List. Now, even though South Korea has opposed Japan's campaign, Tokyo has once again announced that there's no problem for the Sato Mines to be a World Heritage status. That is, Chiang, tell us some uh, developments of this uh, proposal here. Yeah, so uh, rewind to uh, February last year. Uh, Japan submitted a letter to UNESCO in excluding the for forced labor part of its history and covered it with the mines uh, activities during the Edo period, which is from six, uh, the 1600s to the 1800s. Uh, however, uh, at that time, UNESCO judged it to be not good enough and was rejected. So Japan resubmitted a provisional recommend recommendation again last year in September. Um, Japan's proposal for Sado Mine to be added to the 2023 World UNESCO Heritage List is more than just a cultural-driven effect. Uh, the Sado Gold Mines are a representation of the horrors of Japanese imperialism, where thousands of Koreans were forced to do hard labor during World War II. Now, Seoul has urged the Japanese government to acknowledge the for forced labor and cancel its proposal, um, but Japan has ignored the request and said that they will submit a final version no later than February 1st, 2023, calling Seoul's reasoning groundless and regrettable. Now, with only a few weeks left until Japan's deadline, uh, Tokyo is moving swiftly to push Sado Mine on the World Heritage List. And even Japanese Prime Minister Fumio Kishida met with UNESCO Director General Aud uh, Audrey Azule on Monday. Now, the Japanese foreign um, ministry said that the two sides agreed to cooperate in responding to the UNESCO World Heritage Committee. And also, according to Sankei Shimun, uh, Japanese officials said that they submitted their letter of intent on Thursday this week. Now, some might say, now, would this whole thing be solved if Jap Japan includes forced labor in the Sado Mines uh, uh, submission? But uh, even if Japan does so, uh, we have to think about previous pledges, um, including the cold mine in Nagasaki uh, Prefecture, which was inscribed into the World Cultural Heritage List in 2015. At that time, Japan said that uh, they would recognize the many Koreans who were forced to work at the mine. But um, in its 2017 report to UNESCO, uh, Japan breached its pledge and even omitted the phrase forced labor. Yeah. So we can't take that back from, uh, so it's there. So we don't want that happening again with Sado Mines. Yeah, and I think that's not even the only one that uh, whereas kind of Japan didn't uh, go with what was promised. I think even with the Battleship Island, mm -hmm, uh, there, was, right. there was some information that was omitted that they had promised that they were going to put mm -hmm. in. And then once they got the approval, 
approval. They're like, well, let's do now that we got the approval. We're going to take this out here. So uh, UNESCO was not very happy with all of this as well, which is why with Sato, with the Sato mine, I think they're being a little bit more cautious here. I can't believe this. Uh, in the meantime, 10 ruling and opposition lawmakers from the South Korea-Japan Parliamentary Unions are left for Japan today. This for a three-day visit. Uh, they're going to be meeting with Korean residents in Japan. Also, uh, the Japanese cabinet ministers. Uh, Seung, tell us more about this trip. Sure. Um, looking at the members of delegation, five lawmakers, including Chairman Jung Jin-seok and lawmakers Kim Seok-ki and Cho Kyung-tae, will join the ruling PPP, while five members, including Yoon Ho-jung and Kim Han-jung, who are secretaries of the Democratic Party, and Kim Young-ju, vice chairman of the National Assembly, will carry out uh, this three-day trip to Japan. On the first day of the visit, the delegation will attend the welcoming dinner hosted by the central headquarters of the Korean-Japanese group. And on the second day, the lawmakers will have a meeting with Korean-Japanese Congressional Federation, uh, and they will attend a New Year ceremony held by organization run by Korean-Japanese people. And they will also, uh, the delegation will also have a meeting with Chief Cabinet Secretary Hirokazu Matsuno. Uh, the most notable part is, of course, whether South Korea will deliver its opinion on compensation for victims of forced labor to Japan through this visit and how the Japanese lawmakers will respond to it. I'm pretty sure how I know how they're going to respond to this. Uh, mm. But uh, before this, uh, we, we talked about uh, in previous weeks, uh, uh, this week and last week as well, uh, U.S. President Joe Biden, Japanese Prime Minister Fumio Kishida, uh, they're going to be holding bilateral summit talks here. But before all this, uh, U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken and uh, U.S. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin having met with their Japanese counterparts over in Washington. Chiang, can you share with us uh, some of the things that stood out from Wednesday's meetings? Uh, sure. Uh, the United States and Japan um, on this in this meeting have unveiled plans to strengthen security cooperation amid rising Chinese military threats. Um, the U.S. and Japanese foreign uh, and defense ministers identified China as their biggest strategic threat and reaffirmed their cooperation to strengthen bilateral and multilateral cooperation in the Indo-Pacific region. Now, they agreed to adjust the American troop presence on the southern Japanese island of Okinawa in the event of a Chinese incursion into Taiwan or other hostile acts in the South or East China Seas. Now, U.S. Secretary of State uh, Antony Blink, uh, Blinken also reaffirmed U.S. support for Japan's new national security strategy that will arm Tokyo with counter-strike cap capabilities. Now, the two countries also condemned North Korea's growing nuclear and missile threats and stressed that the four ministers reaffirmed their unwavering commitment to the complete denuclearization of North Korea. Now, the two plus two security talks came in the wake of the Japanese government's announcement last month that it will double its national defense budget to 2% of the na nation's gross domestic product over the next five years, which Blinken said during the meeting that Washington endorsed. Now, the U.S. State Department said last week that 
ways to enhance trilateral cooperation with Seoul and Tokyo will feature as a key topic at the summit this Friday on the 13th, especially in the face of growing threats of North Korea. Uh, Also, Japanese media outlets reported last week that Tokyo is reviewing whether to invite South Korean President Yoon Suk-yeol to the group of summit 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 scheduled for May in Hiroshima, Japan. So we could see more dialogue between the two countries before the G7 meeting if the South Korea president officially gets invited. But for any genuine South Korea-Japan cooperation to take place, the issue of wartime forced labor compensation needs to be resolved between the two countries, because if it does it, we're just going to go back to square one. Yeah, absolutely. And it is kind of interesting that, uh, that Tokyo is looking into whether or not they want to invite uh, President Yoon Sagar to the Group of Seven Summit because previously uh, in other G7 summits uh, where uh, the host country, the chair country mm-hmm. had invited South Korea, Japan was kind of against this, uh, but kind of shows you uh, the relations between Seoul and Tokyo right now. And speaking of which, you know, we talked about Japan's new national st- uh, security strategy. Uh, there was some... Uh, people are very much against this, uh, those that were for it, uh, obviously. Mm-hmm. Uh, but President Yoon Sagara did make some positive remarks in, uh, in regards to this, saying that it is to prevent missiles from flying over uh, their heads. What can you do? Uh, they should have this in place. Seong, you have more on this. Right. Um, President Yoon held a joint policy briefing from the foreign and defense ministers at the Blue House guest house on Thursday. He recently has held several meetings or events at the Blue House. There, he said um, Japan decided to increase its defense spending and implement counterattack strategy because North Korea's IRBM medium-range blasting missile are flying overhead. And who would say anything about it? Who would comment on it? And now his remarks seem to reflect South Korean government's support for Japan's new national security strategy. Further, President Yoon reiterated his firm stance against North Korea's nuclear and missile provocations. Yoon pointed out that the most important component in the three-axis deterrence system is massive punishment and retaliation, also known as KMPR. He stressed that it is difficult for North Korea to attack in the first place if South Korea prepares for a massive retaliation. He sounded really confident about KMPR. He continued his remarks saying the most important way to prevent attacks is to firmly establish the KMPR ability to hit 100 times and 1,000 times when we are attacked. And President Yoon even mentioned the possibility of Seoul's own nuclear armament again. And this is not the first time Yoon mentioned this. Previously, he mentioned the possibility of joint exercise with U.S. nuclear forces, though U.S. President Joe Biden denied it right away, saying Washington is not discussing holding joint nuclear exercise with Seoul. Yoon, however, once again emphasized that if the North provocations continue and intensify, South Korea could deploy tactical nuclear weapons or build its own nukes with its science and technology. However, he at the same time tried to ease the excessive tensions, saying it is important to choose realistic method. And for now, it is important for South Korea and the U.S. to continue the discussions and share important information and conduct joint planning and joint execution. 
Again, I'm a firm believer that North Korea is never really going to use their nuclear weapons mm. against South Korea and things like that. They've actually, they are using the nuclear weapons as a deterrence because they know that as soon as they use their nuclear weapons, that their country is going to get wiped out. It's and done. It's, it's, but uh, I'm not sure if adding more nuclear weapons into the Korean Peninsula really helps uh, with all this. Uh, but uh, let's move on. Uh, we talked about... Um, the Chinese retaliation uh, in response to the COVID-19 measures we have uh, here in the country for all the inbound travelers coming from China. Uh, but uh, even though Chinese embassies stopped issuing these visas for South Koreans and also the Japanese, uh, they're showing quite an effort to normalize flights between U.S. and China and back to the pre-COVID era. Chiang, tell us more about this. Sure. The Civil Aviation Administration of China, also known as CAAC, is accelerating U.S.-China flight resumption applications, welcoming Chinese and U.S. airlines to operate flights between the two countries uh, to resume personal exchanges and trade without requiring PCR tests upon arrival or quarantine. On January 8th, as you know, China abolished requirements for PCR tests after arrival and quarantine and also reopened their borders, which were blocked for nearly three years during the pandemic. Now, this week, um, China announced that it would temporarily suspend issuing short-term visas for Korean and Japanese nationals as a sign of retaliation for Korea and Japan to request travelers from China to submit a COVID test within two days before departure. Now, following Beijing's suspension uh, suspension of visa services, Seoul's foreign ministry spokesperson Im Suseok said that they have made it clear to Beijing through diplomatic channels that there should never be restrictions on entry based on factors other than those of COVID quarantine measures and stressed that South Korean government's uh, measures against China were based on scientific grounds to protect its people. Now, just like Korea and Japan, uh, the U.S. also strengthened quarantine measures, making it mandatory for inbound travelers from China to submit a negative COVID test results within two days of boarding the flight, which is exactly the same as what Korea is uh, requesting for. But when it comes to the U.S., uh, China is kind of turning a blind eye. Yeah, I think it maybe it has to do with all the the, the students that want to go study over to the United States and things like that, <laughs> or whatever it may be. But find it interesting that, uh, let's see, January 8th, China abolishes requirement for PCR tests after arrival in quarantine, which means that all throughout this time they had this measure in place because they were afraid that, uh, uh, you know, travelers coming into the country will start spreading COVID-19. And now that it's being done, uh, which, by the way, scientifically, uh, according to the data, uh, things are pretty bad over in China. And now this is considered a political move, mm -hmm. uh, which, I mean, I just don't understand here. Uh, speaking of flights, uh, hundreds, or I should say maybe even thousands, oh, well, yeah, hundreds of flights were actually canceled and then uh, thousands were actually delayed uh, over in the United States on Wednesday. And this is because of a damaged database file system. Uh, I forgot what it was called. Uh, NOTAM, NOTAM. NOTAM is, yeah. I believe it's called. Uh, this caused 
chaos, paralyzed air traffic across the country. I believe uh, there was, it wasn't that long, but it was uh, over an hour that there was like a huge delay here. But uh, Seung, tell us more about this. Right. The Federal Aviation Administration said on its official Twitter account on Wednesday that the organization is continuing its efforts to thoroughly examine the root cause of the NOTAM suspension. And NOTAM is short for the Notice to Air Missions, which send out alerts to inform pilots of conditions that may affect the safety of their flights. And FAA uh, added that they tracked uh, the initial cause of the problem and it was found to be a damaged database file. Reuters also reported that a damaged digital file was the cause of the incident. And FAA said um, and emphasized that there is no evidence of a cyber attack, saying it is constantly trying to take all necessary measures to prevent this kind of confusion from happening again. And the reason FAA highlighted the fact that it was not a cyber attack uh, is because the fears of cyber attacks from Russia, China, or North Korea are growing in the U.S., especially when it's related to aviation security. And although uh, the White House said there is no evidence of cyber attack um, as well, it said it's leaving all possibilities open and keep close tabs on it. You know, the crazy thing with this is I believe one of the FFA, uh, FAA uh, officials came out basically mm. said, look, I mean, these are really, really outdated systems and it needs mm-hmm. to be upgraded. And you guys never upgraded. And this is what we're seeing. And then there were some flights, I believe, some international flights that flew uh, to the United States, despite the mm-hmm. fact that there was a system failure. And when they asked them why they flew, they're like, that system is not even reliable in the first place. So we just ignored it and flew. We're like, what is going <laughs> on there? Uh, that's a big red flag for me, to why be honest. Why haven't they upgraded the system then? <laughs> they said it's so they old said, and not reliable. Yeah, they said it's not a reliable system, so they're going <laughs> to ignore it. That if I'm a, I'm, if I'm on that plane, I'm, or I'm flying in any of those airlines, I'm just going to be like, what? Are you kidding me? Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. So this is kind of scary. Yeah, there's a lot of things that uh, needs to be upgraded over in the United States. Uh, let's move on here on Wednesday. Russian and Ukrainian commissioners met in Turkey for talks on humanitarian issues. Uh, they've agreed to exchange 40 prisoners of war from each country. I think this follows uh, recently that 150-50 each from both sides here. Jean, let's get the latest on this. Uh, sure. Now, according to Reuters, uh, Russian human, human Rights Commissioner Tatiana Moskova uh, and her Ukrainian counterpart, Dmitry Lubnets, met in Turkey on the sidelines of an international conference in Ankara and talked for about 40 minutes over the prisoner exchange issue and came to the conclusion of exchanging, as you mentioned, SJ, 40 prisoners of war from each country. Now, Russia and Ukraine have been steadily exchanging prisoners amounting to hundreds of captives each in the course of the war. And in a separate press conference, the Ukrainian commissioner said the swap agreed on Wednesday was a part of a broader arrangement by uh, with both East with both sides regularly exchanging prisoners, but uh, they both stressed that they had not signed any official agreements. Now, given the current difficulty of establishing humanitarian corridors inside Ukraine, uh, the Russian commissioner said that Turkey could play an important role and asked Turkey, which is a NATO ally, to stop supplying arms to Ukraine. So uh, this seems like um, some kind of 
compromise is going. But um, according to Reuters, there is uh, something uh, give and take behind the scenes when it comes to these. But this is except for the prisoners. What else has been exchanged? We don't know. Yeah, actually, you're right. And I think the only thing that we've seen it positive uh, where the two sides could come to an agreement was the prisoner uh, mm-hmm. exchanges. And uh, this is not the first time they've, they've done this. Uh, I believe uh, just last week there was 100 total, 50-50 from each side. And even before that, I believe, uh, towards uh, la- late last year, there was a number of prisoner swaps uh, as well. So this is at least one of those things that they can agree upon. But uh, when it comes to other issues right now, I think, um, again, a lot of experts are saying that this this war in Ukraine, this is something that's probably going to extend into uh, the next winter is mm. uh, what they're saying. And they just can't come to an agreement because, I mean, it's, it's tough after all this time, right? And nevertheless, guys, uh, as always, thank you very much uh, for your reports today. Please have a safe rest of the week and we'll see you guys again. Thank see you. you. You can listen to Korea Now with me, SJ Lee, by downloading the Arirang Radio application or tune in online by visiting www.arirangradio.com. So make sure you tune in Mondays through Fridays, 6 p.m. to 8 p.m. Korea time.